things and, and what that's going to sound like. And you try to like construct your words in a way that seems, you know, loving, but, but tough or, or, you know, whatever the situation is. And then you start to assume what they are going to say. And then you start building responses to what they're going to say in this conversation that you're going to have with them. So you, you prepare yourself based on what they might say. And so you plan out this whole theoretical conversation in your head. I've done this, so I'm, I'm assuming you have done this as well. Now, you find yourself, as you answer these questions for them, as you answer your, your statements, as you sort of respond back in, you he- in your head, you know exactly what they're going to say, right? This is what happens. We, we say this, and then, well, when I say this, they're going to say this, and then you go based on that to your next conversation point. And so, here we are, we're basing these hypothetical responses from people off of something. That something is what I want to talk to us about tonight. Because what you base that off of is you base it off of someone's character, You get to know someone, you understand their character, who they are, the way that they live, and then you're able to assume how they will respond in this, for instance, hypothetical conversation that you're going to have. Now, anytime I've had this conversation, you go, you sit down, maybe point one, maybe point two goes about the same, and that's usually, hey, how are you? Like, you know, that kind of stuff. And then as soon as you get into the conversation, it takes a turn, and you realize, oh, they're not that bad. It wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't need to think about this quite as long as I did. Right? And so, how, what, what do we base that off of? We base that conversation off of knowing the person's character, knowing their identity. And that is exactly what I want to talk about tonight. But instead of knowing the true identity of your friend, the, the true character of your friend, tonight we will talk about the, knowing the character of God, knowing God's identity. Because if you don't know the true identity and character of God, you might be fooled into believing some distorted and unhealthy views about God and his character. And so tonight we're going to read some verses, probably not from where you'd expect to read them. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 34 to learn about God tonight. Why? Well, chapter 34 contains the longest, most dense description of God's character, all combined in one spot anywhere in the Bible. It has descriptions of who God is, It has descriptions of his character. It's all packed into one nice place that I could use as um, some text to study and to look at tonight. So that's what we'll do. We'll look at that tonight. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. Dear God, take this message and um, speak to the hearts and minds of those who are here. And I pray that for some of us, this might be um, information we've heard a lot For some of us, this is information we need to hear more and more. And so, speak to us tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Where we're studying is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So good, right? So good. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Those verses, they start off so beautifully. 
God's loving, compassionate. He's full of grace and patience for us. And then about halfway through, we get to verse 7. We, you know, we get a little more th- through verse 7. And then it drops the whole, punish the guilty, the, the children and their grandchildren and the generation after generation. And, and then we get to that part and we're like, no, no thank you. No thank you. Verse 6 and the first half of verse 7, please. And then we'll, we'll just sort of stop there. This can happen to us as we read the Bible. We go, boy, oh, I love that. That's a new bio for my Instagram profile or oh, that'd be good on a mug or a t-shirt. Oh, that's beautiful. And then you keep reading the same verse. You get like a verse or two later and you're like, oh, I just wish that part wasn't there. What do we do with that? That took a bit of a turn. So what's going on here in these verses as we read these like good things about God and then these like consequences and, and justice and, and, and dealing with sin and, and, and what do we do with all of that? We love to read about God's mercy and compassion and all of that stuff. But then in verse 7, God's character takes a bit of a turn. And that's part of the challenge here. We seem to have two different character traits of God. Verse 6 is very clear. Loving, right? Look, at he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Oh, great. Clear and understanding. Then we get to verse 7. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the fathers. I mean, that's clear too. He abounds in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to a thousand generations. So he's clearly loving. That's the part we like. But it's the, the justice and the consequences part that we would just prefer not to think about and not to talk about. These are two parts of God's character that I think really confuse us the most. We can agree that they both exist, but how do they work together? How is God loving and yet... Um, and yet uh, punishes the guilty and brings consequences on the Father, that doesn't seem loving. It's hard for us to deal with the love side and the justice side of God. So what do we do with verses like this? And that's exactly what we're going to look at tonight. First of all, there's a core skill you need to develop when you are learning to read the Bible. Because if the Bible is God revealing his story and his identity and his character to us, then we have to pay serious attention to what it's saying, what it means, and in order to do that, we need to understand what form it's written in or how it's written. And so the main way the Bible reveals God's character to us is through narrative and poetry. We learn the most about God through narrative and poetry, or in other words, stories and poems. But think about that for a second. Were these verses that I just read to you, were they a story or were they a poem? I mean, it doesn't seem like it. You don't really get much information when I just pulled two verses out of the Bible like I did. But that's because that's what I did. These, these verses are actually a part of a really important story. And there is some poetic writing happening, some poetic language happening here as well. So you can't understand the full meaning of God's character and his identity without first understanding the story that these verses come from. So to do that, we've got to go back much earlier in Exodus. And we would be here all night if I read to you even all of the verses that I'm going to be mentioning. So I'll, I'll summarize them and we'll get you through this. But if you've never read these verses, great opportunity. Go home tonight, read an, an incredible story that has a really important um, storyline when it comes to the plot of the Bible. But here's the summary. 
Because without knowing the story, when we read verse 7 especially, or the end of verse 7, it, it makes us want to cry. It makes us just want to pack it up and, and just go home. Because, I, like, let me tell you, I am not perfect. Some of you know that. I'm, not, I'm far from perfect. So are you. But, um, and so when we read this whole, leaving the, he uh, punishes the guilty and bringing consequences, it's like, ooh, is, is that me? But when you understand the story that leads up to these verses about God's character, it starts to fit into place. Okay, so God has delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so doing that was God showing them mercy and grace. But by doing that, God was also keeping his promises that he made to Abraham. So he brings them through the wilderness to the foot of a mountain. The name of this mountain is Mount Sinai, and that's where this story takes place. God appears to Israel in the form of a cloud, and God gives them some commandments that we are all likely familiar, or should be familiar with. The first one is, I'm your God, and don't worship other gods, okay? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make this quick. In other words, don't try to represent me with some image or idol. Don't try to worship me the same as you would worship other, or how other nations would worship or how other nations would worship their gods. That's not how you worship me. Okay? So that seems easy enough. And they, it even says in the Bible that they understood that. So, 40 days goes by. They get the Ten Commandments. Moses is, is up with God in this cloud. And the people are like, well... It's been a few days. What should we do? Guess what they do? Well, you probably know. They do exactly what God told them not to do. They're like, Moses? Who knows what happened to that guy? It's been like 40 days. This guy's been up on a mountain just having a wilderness hike. God? 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 What God? You mean that cloud? What? So they go, I know. Here's what we're going to do. Let's make a calf out of our melted gold earrings and necklaces. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so that on its own is bad enough, but that's not it. Then they start this huge religious festival, this big party. And you read in the story, it says that they fill their bellies. They, they, they drink and get drunk. And then it says they rose up to play, or they rose up to party, or they uh, were to engage in revelry. And so what, what's happening in our Bibles is it's just trying to be polite, because there's it's like sexual connotations to what's going on there. So they make this gold cow... They have this festival worshiping the calf that's supposed to represent God. Then they get drunk and they have this like huge sex party. So where in the world would these people come up with the idea that this is how you're supposed to worship God? Well, have to ask themselves, where have they been living for 400 years? They certainly haven't been worshiping God for 400 years. They've been all over the map. He came, God revealed himself to them in the form of this cloud because they, they were losing track of who God even was. And so they tried to worship God. They tried to do the things that they're used to seeing people do as they worship their gods. And they start worshiping him just like any Egyptian or any Canaanite would have done. If you're going to worship the fertility gods, well, that's what you do. So obviously, God is not pleased. He gives the first instruction, first commandment he gives them is, have no other gods before me, do not make idols, and, and, and here they are. So God invites Moses to come and intercede on behalf of the people. Because God's like, the, God's like you know what? Maybe this was a bad idea. 
Let's just wipe them all out. Noah 2.0. And let's, let's just start this over. How's that sound? And Moses is like, no, 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 no. No, that's not a good idea. You don't want to do that because you are God. You are merciful. You are compassionate. You made these promises to Abraham that you were going to do something with this family. And so God says, okay, okay, okay. All right. I'm not going to do that. And so I will forgive them. And so God forgives them. But there's still 3,000 people who took part in this whole party, feast, all these rituals, uh, idol worshiping. And those 3,000 people, they face the repercussions of their actions. God forgives, okay? He doesn't break his covenant. He doesn't break the promise that he made with Israel. But at the same time, for those Israelites, the ones who are like, so what? I know God asked us not to do this, but this is what we want to do. We're going to do this anyways. For those people, they got what they deserved. They received judgment because they earned the judgment. And so there you go. That's the story. So obviously Moses is very overwhelmed as all this is happening. So he says to God, God, show me your ways. I want to know you. I want to understand you. You're a God of justice. You do these things, but you're also a God of love. And so God shows up to Moses. And here we are reading these words about who God is. That's the story. So here, here's why it's important to retell that, to, to as we read these verses, right? This is a list of God's attributes. But this isn't just some random list that is just pulled up out of thin air. It's not just trying to describe God in an abstract way. What God is doing is telling Moses who he is, the kind of God that he is. God is summarizing what took place why he did what he did, why he acted the way that he did. God says that he's concerned for the well-being of these people who are not listening. They're not hearing from him and then living their lives based on that. And, and that hurts him because that sin separates them from him. But, because of, even though all of that happened, he is gracious to them. And that's not an emotion, that's an action. He gave the people something they didn't deserve. Grace. And so because he is hurt by them, and because he cares so much for them, he maintains this covenant with them. Even though that is not what they deserve. Based on their actions, based on the way that they live their lives... They shouldn't be getting this grace from God. God is slow to anger, it says. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. We know this because this is not the first time Israel has done something like this to God. This isn't the last time Israel will do something like this to God. But still, God is slow to anger. God is abounding in love. God is faithful to them. So verse 6 was a summary of what happened in that story. Verse 7 is also a summary of what happened in that story. So let's dig into those more harsh-sounding words and look at just verse 7. Okay, he says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. 
but I do not excuse the guilty. Am I, I'm just making, uh, oh, I'm, I'm reading from a different translation. Let me read it, what you have. I maintain faithful of forgiving the rolling sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Verse 7 is a poetic statement about how God's love relates to his justice. We're told here that God keeps his promised love. And he keeps his promised love for thousands, not thousands of people, for thousands of generations. Now, how long is a generation? Uh, A long time, right? And remember, this is poetry, not science, so it's it's colorful, right? So a long, long time for thousands of generations. He keeps his love. In other words, forever. For thousands of generations, God keeps his love. But just because he keeps his promised love doesn't mean he just excuses or ignores the sin of individuals or families or like three to four generations. There's a reason why we're told it's three to four generations. We're supposed to notice the the difference here in the numbers. You tell me, which is more? We have a thousand generations and we have the third and fourth generation. Okay, three, four versus 1,000 even. One is smaller than the other one, right? So it does say that God brings consequences to the third and fourth generation. But it also says that God maintains faithful love to a thousand generations. We're supposed to see and feel and understand just how uneven those numbers are. God is just and God is love. God's love doesn't cancel out the need for his mercy. It works together harmoniously so that God's love is always the thing that he's accomplishing. Even through his justice, he's accomplishing love. So if your vision of God is that he's just primarily out there to get you, depending on, I would say, maybe how like, spiritually mature you are, this is maybe like a, a way of thinking that we can have about God, is that he, he's, he's like, uh, trying to catch you. He's trying to you know, uh, get you on, on every little thing. Maybe like a teacher who, who feels like they're just looking to give you a detention. Or maybe, like, the police monitoring your behavior so they can catch you and give you a ticket, right? They're they're parked up the street a little bit at a stop sign, and they're, like, watching to make sure you come to a complete stop before rolling forward. And you're like, come on, you were parked there to try to give me a ticket, right? It feels like that. Understanding God this way is a distortion of his character, God cares deeply about how we behave and the things that we do, how we treat each other, how we act as human beings. But when we don't live that way, when we don't live the way that he wants us to, his justice is one of the ways that he shows his promise to us that he will always love us. And that is a key piece of information that you need to remember. God isn't looking for ways to be mad or disappointed in us. God loves us. It's us who behaves the way that God has told us not to live. 
He's given us the path to follow. He's told us that we'll need to be corrected if we don't follow it. Let me give you an example. Think back to when you were in school, okay? For some of you, this isn't that long ago, and it's easy to remember. For some of you, it's a few years ago, okay? Let's assume that the teachers that you, every teacher you had in school, wanted you to to succeed and do well. And, And I hope they did, because otherwise they're in the wrong profession. But assuming they wanted the best for you, your teacher taught you all that they felt you needed to know about the subject that they were responsible for teaching you. So they would get up there every morning or every day or whatever time the class was, and they presented to you. They gave you a textbook full of information. They created activities that you could do so that they could ensure that you're learning the things that you should be learning. Make sure that you're on track. Now, we fast forward to the end of your semester. Okay, you're preparing to get that final grade. And you need a good grade in this class to get into the college, university that you really wanted to go to. So you would expect the teacher to give you the grade that you deserve, right? And what you feel you deserve is probably different than what the teacher feels you deserve. Especially because you didn't do the work you were supposed to be doing. You didn't listen to what the teacher was saying. And so you got the grade that you deserved. And in this scenario, the punishment for you is not getting into the college or the university that you wanted to go to. See, when that happens, it feels like the teacher is punishing you. But, it, but that's not what's actually taking place. It's not, that you're, it's not that your teacher didn't want the best for you. The teacher just can't ignore the fact that you've disobeyed what they've said. Because otherwise, your actions won't be corrected. And if you're supposed to be on this mark, you're supposed to be living this, this, this way, you're supposed to be studying this, this path, well, then you need to be corrected to get you back on track, to get you learning the things, the subject that you are supposed to be learning. And the one way your teacher can do that is by giving you the grade that you deserve. So when your teacher gives you a failing grade, if that is the grade that you deserve, that's your teacher saying, I care enough about you to let you deal with this now rather than continuing on like you have been this semester. You can tell I speak to high school students a lot. (laughs) Teacher examples. And so on the surface level, this is what it seems like, well, those verses that were up there were saying about God's character. The thing that we need to understand, though, is that sin is a real thing. It's not just a philosophical understanding. Maybe you've heard of this. Maybe, maybe you've seen or, or heard of these floating trash islands or trash island that's in the Pacific Ocean. Like this, okay? I don't know. It's not the greatest picture, I know. you have to excuse that. But it's like around the size of Texas, maybe larger, I read. Okay? They're, they're out there. And this is like um, uh, plastic bags, water bottles, stuff that gets thrown into the ocean. It all sort of floats together and collects in this area and it's created these, these actual islands. So these trash islands are out there in the Pacific Ocean. But I don't know about you, I don't see the Pacific Ocean from my bedroom window at night when I'm going to bed, right? So for me, things like these trash islands, sure, they might exist, but for me, it's out of sight, out of mind. I don't go to bed at night worried about this trash island. Maybe I should be, but I don't, because I, I don't see it. 
That doesn't mean that this trash island isn't a real thing. But it just doesn't go away when I don't think about it. Okay, it's the same with our sin. It doesn't just go away if we don't think about it. Our sin is, it's, it's a real, it's, it's something that affects physically. Our moral wrongdoings, they create something real. They create something within this world. They separate us from God. It's a real thing. And they like accumulate like these trash islands. And they need to be dealt with. Our actions need to be corrected. And so, God's incredible offer to you and to me is that if I come to God with humility and with openness and I own my failures and I put them out there, that he is eager and ready to actually remove the sin from my life. It's incredible. He's willing and able to do something about the sin in your life. To remove it. To take it and put it as far away from you as as the east is from the west. Goodbye. So you know that thing that you did? That thing that you wish would just disappear when you stop thinking about it? That thing you wish you could just pretend was not there? Pretending that it's not there doesn't solve the problem. But God can actually do something about it. What he was saying in verse 7 is that he wants to do something about it. See, he knew you were going to fail. That's not a surprise to him. Because <laughs> he knew Israel was going to fail. It wasn't a surprise to him either. We need to stop beating ourselves up mentally because we think that for whatever reason, God is mad at you because you've failed X many times in your life. He's not surprised. He wants to forgive you. He loves when, you open, when you're open and honest about your failures and your shortcomings. God's offer is to always be available to pick up and take away the sin in our lives. Here's the, the scary part. Some of us say that we believe that. Some of us would even repeat those words that God would take the sin away from us. But here's the thing. The more I talk to people, the more I realize that a lot of Christians today struggle with actually believing that God removes the sin from our lives. You want to know how you, want to know how you believe whether or not God removes the sin from your life? You'll know you don't really believe that God actually takes away your sin when you feel like you have to keep rehashing those regrets, those dumb decisions you made, the the sin in your life again and again and again and again. You feel like you still deserve the shame or the guilt, those regrets, those dumb decisions that you made. Or or when something goes wrong in your life, you're like, I knew it. I knew it was just a matter of time. This is God punishing me because I did so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. Well, if that was the case, if our sin was forgiven, God has removed it. He has taken it away from us. Put it as far as the, far as the east is from the west. Now, I assume others think that way because A, I've talked to people who think that way, and B, because I find myself thinking that way. And it's just wrong, flat-out wrong. That is not God's character. We are dishonoring what God is telling us about himself, which is that if we turn to him with our failures, that he is right there to take away our sin. 
I can't think of any more creative ways to say it than that we just don't believe it. It might be the most significant step of faith for some of us to take to actually believe that we are forgiven. It's very difficult for some of us, but this is what God was saying about himself. This is the last slide I have for you guys up there. It says, The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That is what God is saying about himself. He says, He's right here to meet you and to remove the sin. There are consequences to our decisions and they can really negatively affect other people as well as our relationship with God. But in terms of what comes between you and God, if you allow him to forgive you, if you turn from your old ways, if you turn from your old ways, you're clean. You you, You can be made clean to move forward. It's a new day. And that's God's offer right here. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. He forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Let's pray. God, some of us here tonight really need to hear that. Too often, God, we we think of you like a a police officer who's, who's out trying to catch us rather than thinking of you the way we should as, as our loving, heavenly Father. And so, if, if that's the case for us, if we, if we struggle to, tr- to believe that you truly do remove the sin from our lives, I pray that, that we dig into your word, that we gain a better understanding of who you are, your character, your identity, and just how much you love us, and just how that is actually the case, that you remove the sin from our lives when we turn to you, repent of our sin, and turn away from that way of living. We are so thankful. We do not deserve it. And yet you love us. We are so thankful. In your name we pray. Amen.